Hello, I'm Shauna Matthews with the Office of Communications. I'm joined today by Dr. Emmy Betts, who is a practicing physician at the University of Colorado Emergency Department on the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. Dr. Betts is an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and co-founder of the Colorado Firearm Safety Coalition. Dr. Betts is a nationally recognized expert on lethal means restriction and the care of suicidal patients. She is federally funded by the National Institute of Mental Health and the National Institute of Aging and has 90 peer-reviewed citations. First question, do you ever sleep? I actually sleep a lot. I really love naps. <laughs> Great. So you are one of the country's top experts on firearm suicides. How did you know that this particular torch was for you to carry? Why you? I, I wish I had a sort of aha story where it was clear to me from childhood, um, but I, I think it developed slowly. I think I was, it was a convergence of really seeing a need in the emergency department that we care for a lot of patients with suicide risk and I want to do better for them. Um, and then also once I learned the statistics about firearm suicide in particular, was just sort of blown away and also realized it was something I could really have a, a voice in. Um, it also has some personal meaning for me. We've lost family members and so it feels good on all fronts to be working on it. When you're working in the ER, how frequently do you encounter patients with depression or suicidal thoughts? Every time, a couple a shift at least. It's, um, it's a huge problem. And I think some of that is that there aren't great outpatient resources for people. So people often end up in the ER. Um, but it's also just much more common than we want to talk about. We all go through ups and downs in life and uh, we need to break down that stigma. Um, but it's a, it's a huge part of my job. Do you think it's increasing? I think so. And, you know, we certainly know that suicide rates are increasing. Uh, I, I don't know why. In my own life, I will say, I feel like, you know, the phones and not com connecting with people and political stress and climate change and existential threats. And I think all those things, it feels like people are more stressed than maybe they used to be. But I don't know. You'd have to ask prior generations also. Do you remember your first patient that came in who was suicidal? I was going to say, I remember my very first patient actually had ringworm, um, but that was not, that was a long time. <laughs> that was a long time ago. We see a lot of things in the ER. Um, I, there's not really one that sticks in my mind because they, in some ways, blur together because there are so many commonalities, I think, in what people are going through. Um, so I don't have that one standout story. How did you learn to talk to people who are having suicidal thoughts? I think a lot of practice and I think recognizing that one of the basic things we can do for, for patients or our friends or family who are going through tough times is give them hope. And so some of it was realizing that I needed to stop being a doctor and just be a person um, and just be honest that I'm glad they're there and I hope we can help and tomorrow we'll, we'll, we'll be better. So it seems like the general thinking is that if you take a gun away from someone, they will just find another method to try and hurt themselves. Do you find that to be the case? So I I would say no. For We know from research that actually that is not the case. That, uh, so, you know, there's often this very short time period between when someone decides to try to kill themselves and takes action, sometimes in the space of minutes to hours. I, it's not that it's impulsive, like completely out of the blue, that you suddenly decide to attempt suicide. I mean, there's usually something going on, whether it's mental illness or, or social stressors or both. But that very high risk period is often, again, space of minutes to hours. And so we know if someone gets through that period, they are unlikely to attempt suicide. In fact, we know from research that among people who survive a suicide attempt, 
only 10% later die by suicide. And at 10% fatality rate or a 90% survival rate, like that's much better than a lot of cancers, Ebola, all these things we, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, it is a very common misperception that people will automatically just find another way. Uh, it's really just not true. The, the, the last thing I would say about that, too, is that for the very small proportion who do try another method, it's far less likely to kill them. So firearms are lethal. They're supposed to be lethal. And so no second chance. Yeah, there's no second chance. There's no regretting what you just did. There's no regretting taking the medications and calling 911. They usually don't even get to the ER because they die at the scene. Um, and so sometimes people say, well, you're just picking on the guns. Why are you only talking about the guns? And, and that's why, because they are lethal. We should also be making sure medications are locked up and we should be putting barriers on bridges and, and those other kinds of things. But the firearms are the most lethal method which is why we talk about them the most. So your work on firearm suicide was the basis of your TEDx Mile High Talk in 2015. And a TEDx talk is not something that scientists and physicians typically do. In a scientific talk, you have figures and tables that if you forget what you're about to say, you can just go back to the data. Not the case with a TEDx Mile Talk. So whatever possessed you to say yes, and what was the experience like? Well, I will say, I probably say yes to too many things. <laughs> I was really honored uh, to be invited to do it. I think whenever I speak, um, even things like today, I consider this an opportunity to try to educate the public. And I think in clinical medicine and in science, we have a, a deep responsibility to do that. And so if I can try to do it, I always will. Um, the TEDx talk was really crazy. I think it's good I didn't know what I was getting into in some ways. I mean, I think there were 2,500 people there maybe, and it was at the Ellie Calkins Opera House. So I remember on the stage, you know, there's like the five levels of, of people. And um, there's no teleprompter, so you have to basically memorize it. And there were no slides. Um, I, I did some speaking courses before it, and I practiced a lot. Uh, and I'm so glad that I did it because it really made me realize um, that maybe one way I can help in, in the sort of epidemic of firearm suicide is by bringing a voice to it and, and helping educate. Would you ever do another one if they sure. asked you to come back? Yeah. Did you forget any part? No, I didn't. I do remember, I have a very vivid memory of standing backstage thinking, maybe I'll just not do it. <laughs> <laughs> and then saying, no, that's silly. And, and, is that an uh, option? Can you run? Would they find you? I mean, you would look like pretty stupid probably because <laughs> it's a live audience. And so, yeah. Yeah. So, but I would for sure do it again if I had the opportunity. And I've done lots of other awesome but odd things since. I think most recently, the one that stressed me out the most but was wonderful was I was invited to go to Buckley Air Force Base to talk about the same subject. And it ended up being in a gym with, I don't know, a couple hundred airmen talking to them about their guns. And it was sort of like a pep rally because it was in a like the gym and we were all in jeans and it was like a totally different vibe, but it was it was awesome. So I'm up for anything. <laughs> so in your TED Talk, you say something to the effect of when you're talking to someone who has suicidal thoughts, it's not so important what you say, but that you say something at all. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I think that's about, so like I was saying about at times forgetting I'm a doctor and just being a person. And um, I think it's especially true in the clinical realm as medical students and doctors, we get really hung up on like the order we're supposed to ask things in and the, the right words. And a lot of it is just about trying to connect with people. Um, 
I've thought about this also in the context of firearm safety generally when I was thinking about play dates and how do I ask parents if there are guns in the home and I was so stressed out about the right words and at the end of the day a lot of it I really think is just about showing that you care about someone that you're not judging them that you want everyone to be safe and um, I think again for friends or family who might be having a tough time you know helping them see that there's hope and that they can get better. So not to put you on the spot, but in your TED Talk, you say that there are two questions that you should ask somebody who is having suicidal thoughts. Do you remember remember what you said? I do, <laughs> thankfully. Whew. No, so the one is that if you're worried about somebody, you should ask if they're having thoughts of suicide, that that won't trigger them to do something. It's okay to ask. Uh, and then the second question is if they say yes, to then say, you know, to ask if they have access to firearms. Uh, and if they say yes to that, then you figure out, or what you can do to make make their home a little safer. Just locking up the guns does not fix the problem. I want to be clear about that. People need wh- whatever kind of treatment it is they need. Maybe it's substance abuse. Maybe it's counseling. Maybe it's medications. But the point is to make their home as safe as possible during that time. Did I get them right? Was it was that the yeah. two questions? Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> you nailed. It. <laughs> Phew. I thought about making you do the full thing, just start to finish to see how much of it you could remember, but I passed. I probably could do a bunch of it, but I've I've sort of blocked it out also. Yeah, Yeah, that's fair. Like childbirth. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I'm not sure which was worse. No, 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 no. So one one of the many hats you wear is you are one of the co-founders of the Colorado Firearm Safety Coalition. So you work with gun shop owners, range owners, and uh, their clients to basically educate about gun safety. So how do you think that changes the reach of your gun safety message? I mean, I am just so grateful for the group I've been working with because at the end of the day, the people who need this message are people with firearms in their home. And so by going through the trusted locations, the gun shops, the ranges, that is how we get that message out. Uh, And I think one of the other presentations I was probably, again, more worried about than the TEDx talk was uh, ladies' night at the gun club a couple years ago. And there were like 100 women there who had come to shoot. And there's not wine at ladies' night. It's not book club. <laughs> so there's, there's brownies and lemonade and things. But it was just awesome talking to these women who were all very gun smart, I would say. Um, but they asked those same questions. Is it really okay to ask if someone is suicidal? What do I do if I'm worried about my teenager? Um, the same questions that I think we all can have. But I just really felt like the public health community had not found a way to get the message to them yet. Mm-hmm. And so it, was, it just was awesome. I hope we'll do it again soon. So one of the key demographics at particular risk of suicide by firearm is white middle-aged men. Do you have the answer why that's the case? <laughs> and, and what can be done to speak to that group in particular? I, I don't have the magic answer. I think a lot of it has to do with cultural norms, stigma against, you know, men asking for help, um, admitting they're having trouble, right? All these, like, I would argue outdated images we have of men as sort of tough and men don't cry and all of that nonsense. Um, And so, you know, we know that that suicide rates in men are also higher because they tend to use firearms more than women. And so, again, then they're more likely to die. So I think part of it is that we need to be finding ways to engage men in these conversations earlier. And uh, man therapy is a phenomenal project that I wish I had been part of. I just I just love it. So I just talk about it. But it was uh, the state of Colorado developed it specifically to reach out to the sort of middle-aged white men that it's not about therapy or suicide prevention or anything like that, but it's really a 
sort of funny way to address the risk factors that if you're going through a tough time or substance abuse or so I, I highly recommend people check it out. So I think part of it is about how do we really engage men in making it okay to acknowledge that they're going through tough times. And then I think for the firearm piece of it, I think a lot of it is going to be how do you engage them in looking out for each other. So I often use the analogy of the designated driver, your sort of your battle buddy, like, right, it, it often might not be the wife who they really want to talk to, but maybe it's um, their good buddy who's like, hey, man, let me let me help you. Can I hang on to your guns for a while? That that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's a nobody's figured it out yet. It's what, one of the things we're working on. What do you think we need to teach the next wave of boys mm-hmm. that will become men? What do we need to teach them to keep this from being their cross to bear as well? Oh, that is a good question. I have two girls, so in some ways I haven't had to think about this too much. But I mean, I, I think it's hard. There's this there's this mix, right? You want to teach people grit and resilience and overcoming adversity and, and not complaining about everything. But at the same time, we need to recognize that life is hard and life, you know, we all have our ups and downs and mental illness is a real thing that is, you can have everything on paper be perfect, but Mm -hmm. be struggling with depression or anxiety. And so we need to make it okay to ask for help for those things. And I think to recognize that mental health is as just as important as physical health, and we need to stop like separating them and stigmatizing one. Do you have, do you have any ideas on how to assess mental? I mean, we have lots of ways to assess physical fitness, right? Do you have any ways on how to assess mental fitness? Gosh, that is a great question. I mean, I think there's, it's not the area I work in so much, but I would say off the top of my head, what I think about is, so some things like man therapy actually have like assessments you can do for yourself to kind of see where you're at. Um, But I think a lot of the programs, for example, for healthcare providers around like mindfulness and uh, sort of ways to, to check in and assess yourself and for providers checking in on things like burnout and sort of secondary trauma of going through things with people like that's all really important and and we're definitely teaching it more which is great but I don't have some larger plan so uh recently the Colorado Firearm Safety Coalition released a gun storage map so how's that going how is it being received are you getting any pushback for that no actually we um since it came out we have had a few stores call in asking to be added which is awesome and uh we have I think nine or ten other states who are interested so we now have a sort of setup for calls and we're going to try to make a multi-state map of kind of anyone who wants to add in their data so that we can keep growing it you know it was an unfunded side project so we don't have the capacity to to take on the whole country um but uh it was a great project and i hope i hope it's useful and i think it's useful to people, I mean, looking for storage, but I think it's also opened up a bunch of issues and questions that nobody had thought about before, like around liability and in storing and returning and the costs associated with it for law enforcement and so forth. So I hope it'll help maybe settle some of those questions as well. So the purpose of that is to have a safe place to store guns so they're not in the home? Correct. So we th- we saw, thought about it in the context specifically of suicide risk. If, if I, as a provider, am recommending that somebody temporarily voluntarily get their gun out of the home where do you do that right and so we knew there was there's like a map for opioid take back locations right where you can see the pharmacies Mm -hmm. and so we were like oh we should make one for firearms and there's an awesome student on campus who is doing his master's in public health and then going back to med school 
So he called hundreds of gun shops over the summer and made got the data to make this map. So it's gun stores and law enforcement agencies that are willing to at least consider storage. So we also didn't, we, we said, look, it's still up to you, case by case, you do what you want, you follow your own policies and so forth. And although we were thinking of it in the, in the context of suicide risk, I think it could be useful for lots of circumstances, right? Like, let's say you're going out of town for a month, you're you're renting your house on VRBO, your grandkids are coming, right? So it's not specific to suicide, but um, hopefully it'll be useful. And we've heard at, from at least one store that at least one person has called in asking for storage. So that feels That's like a good. win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Count the wins. Yeah. So I want to switch gears for just a second and talk about other things other than work. So you have a family. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you're a mom to two mm-hmm. girls. So I'm not going to ask about work-life balance because I hate that question. But I want to ask you about how you feel about work-life balance. Does it bother you that women get asked that question more than men? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think I do – my, my side work gig, I suppose, is I feel very passionate about equity issues on campus and you know women's leadership and women supporting other women and issues within the workplace of women not being identified as physicians and that. And – I will say I'm raising two feisty little girls who do not take any nonsense. And, you know, my husband has been along and on board the whole time, too. I'm, I mean, I think he he was the one who was like, we need to go to the Women's March. And I don't I don't really like crowds. So I was like, really? And he's like, we got to go. And I was like, OK, yeah, you're right. We got to go. <laughs> so um, so it's bit by bit. And does it mean that our lives are perfectly balanced? Of course not. But I think having those conversations and talking with our kids about gender issues and race issues. We haven't figured it all out, but we're trying. And um, it's great to see how easily kids take to it and they get it. And then they're like, why did people used to think that crazy thing? And it's like, yeah, that was 10 years ago, but you're right. It's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And then we have to explain for the sins of our fathers. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But, but, you know, it's a real, it's a real, it's real. My husband's an attorney and, you know, we've had lots of conversations about how in many ways, the legal profession is, I think, a little bit behind the medical profession. And, you know, I think it was easier for me to take parental leave than for him to take parental leave and things that just I hadn't really expected to run into. And um, so day by day. So speaking of day by day, at the end of the day, how do you step down from the weight of your profession? You said that on every shift you encounter patients who are having suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you take care of yourself to be able to go back and do it the next day? Yeah, it's it's tough. I think it's taken me a while to figure out that uh, what works for me. I think a lot of it is self-compassion and, and recognizing it takes me about two hours after a shift before I can care about anyone. <laughs> so I used to get home from work and be useless as a spouse and a mom. And I like literally just felt like I had to lie on the living room floor and stare at the ceiling. And then I would get really sad at myself of like, oh, why don't I want to play with my kids and all that and I've now realized it's really right around two hour mark for me suddenly I am back and so the having the self-compassion to recognize that's okay and that that is my washout period that I need to transition and you can't be everything at once and that's okay and my kids my kids get that too now and um, in the same way you know we talk about if you're angry sometimes you just need to step away and so it's hard. It's it's hard as I get older, too. I'm more tired, I feel like. The sleep is harder. But uh, I'm always looking for new strategies for how to how to um, 
balance that out and find the longevity that it's a marathon and not a sprint. (laughs) So for the next phase of your marathon, so you also have several publications and funding for research on aging patients and driving behaviors. Where do you see your career going from here? Yeah, so I now think of the work I do as patient-centered injury prevention is how I like to describe it, that I'm really interested in the clinical setting, how we work with patients to help them live their best lives by preventing injuries. So that includes um, suicide and specifically the firearm piece, older drivers making decisions about when to stop driving. And then now we're doing some, I think, really interesting work around dementia and firearms and how people can make choices there. I seem to really tackle the like controversial subjects. And I've been really grateful over the past year or so to be doing more and more work on the in national organizations and work groups and I hope that will continue, and I so I don't sort of know where it's going. I don't have some 10-year plan right now. The science is really important to me because we need science to drive what we're doing, and we should be doing evidence-based work. At the same time, I really love the speaking and engagement and, you know, working on in different work groups and things, and so it's someday will I stop doing the science myself? I don't know, maybe. But I think for now, these three topics really are feeling great to me. And so as we sort of flesh them out and think about how we engage with providers and patients in the community, and I don't know, I'll probably listen to this in a couple years and laugh. I wish I I had a vision, but maybe that's part of having small kids is you also, like, it's kind of a day at a time. (laughs) Do your daughters want to be scientists? Uh, no, I don't know. They both love math. The funny thing is in my house, I am the one who's bad at math, which sort of cracks me up that I'm a scientist and like they only go to their dad for math homework, which is not a gender thing. It's just that like they're, the three of them are like off the charts. But, (laughs) um, I think one wants to be a vet for a while. One wanted to like be a singer or ballet dancer. So I don't, I don't know what the latest is, but I do love, I have a, I have a picture in my office that my daughter drew for me when she was probably five or six. And it, it's a picture of a person speaking to a big audience. And also a, a pic, in the same, there's a picture of the, then the person lying on a bed listening to the radio. And I said to her, oh, is that is that mommy speaking and you listening to me? And she looked at me and she said, no, that's me speaking <laughs> and me listening to myself on the radio. And I, 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 like, I felt like I won, like, yeah. <laughs> it was a good role model moment. That's so, right. Raising yeah. strong girls. Yeah. I mean, just to, to have a voice and to make the world a little better somehow. That's what we're that's what we're trying to instill in them. I don't actually care if they do science or medicine. I just I want them to feel like they should make each day a little better for other people. Well, Dr. Betts, that is all I have. Uh, thank you for taking the time to come be with us today. Oh, thank you so much.